welcome to the one year anniversary edition of the Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We launched this revamped journal podcast 12 episodes ago. We hope you're enjoying it. We sure are. And please keep sharing with your colleagues. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Alex Abechkin from the Fraser Rehabilitation Institute in Kentucky on his work in respiratory training and chronic spinal cord injury. But first, the news. In case you missed it, New York Times columnist Frank Bruni, who's been with the paper for 23 years, disclosed his recent acquisition of a disability in a powerful column headlined, Am I Going Blind? In it, Bruni writes about waking up with the loss of useful vision in his right eye and the realistic prospect of losing sight in his left eye, too. This is due to a rare diagnosis called non-arteric anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, which occurs due to an anatomical defect in which the optic nerve doesn't have enough space. Bruni's essay is an artful meditation of the predicament he now faces at age 53. I encourage you to read it. In major news for the field of brain injury medicine, the FDA approved the first lab test for concussion, an event that seemed inevitable for years now. This first test is pretty limited in its utility, and it certainly doesn't seem to have a role in rehabilitation per se. The Banyan Brain Trauma Indicator measures UCHL1 and GFAP proteins released in the first 12 hours post-trauma. The evidence that Banyan submitted to the FDA only justifies the test being used in one specific circumstance to predict whether mild TBI is likely to show up on CT with intracranial lesions of some sort. So the test is really only going to be useful for an ER doctor who's looking at a patient with a benign neurological examination, but still suspects there could be something serious going on. There's certainly a lot of overscanning happening for concussion in ERs, and it'll be interesting to see if this Banyan test does anything to suppress some of those needless scans, and of course, how much it'll cost. really big news and interventional stroke care so far this year with major implications for rehabilitation. The big Diffuse 3 endovascular thrombectomy trial results were released. And just like the DAWN study released last year, it's showing patients who get access to endovascular clot retrieval, even many hours post-stroke, up to 16 hours in this study, are experiencing on average markedly better functional outcomes. And in February, the FDA approved a clot retrieval device for up to 24 hours post-stroke, quadrupling its prior window of six hours. Along with the use of these devices, besides better outcomes for some patients, be prepared to see more vascular perforations and arterial dissections and damage to the femoral artery as well. These complications go along with this imperfect technology that on the whole will still do quite a lot of good. And expanding the time window to 24 hours means people in rural areas can still get access to these treatments with enough time to get to the tertiary care center after initial assessments at local facilities via ambulances and life flights. So I'm recording this podcast at my standing desk in my office at the Shepherd Center, where a growing number of my fellow employees have standing desks too. In fact, our chief medical officer even has a treadmill desk. 
A new study in the journal Ergonomics has led to a lot of headlines criticizing the standing desk bandwagon. Headlines included standing desks increase pain and slow down mental ability, study suggests. And standing desks could be harmful to your productivity and your health, study finds. The Washington Post quotes the University of Nottingham's Alan Taylor, a physiotherapy professor, saying that the bottom line is that this expansion of standing desks has been driven more by commercial reasons than scientific evidence. But the evidence is catching up, and it's showing there are some drawbacks. And he's right that standing desks are big business nowadays. The new study out of Curtin University in Perth, Australia, looks at 20 adults who did standing computer work in their laboratory setting for two hours, and the researchers compared their comfort ratings and cognitive functions at 30-minute intervals, including baseline for five times total. Their subjects only included people who didn't regularly use standing desks. So guess what they found? Musculoskeletal discomfort increased, and so did reaction time. Lower limb swelling in the calves went up too. Now, anyone who's adapted to a standing desk will agree 100%. You have to ramp yourself up to it. Acutely, those first few days, you're going to have more aches and possibly more distraction. So I'm not sure this single study tells us anything we didn't know. The adage of ergonomics is, your next position is the best position. You need to be constantly changing your position throughout the day, and a standing desk can help you do that. Now, interestingly, this Australian study showed better creative problem solving and improving accuracy with standing. Those findings didn't make it into the headlines, though. Now, in the fall of last year, a similarly flawed epidemiological study looked at heart disease risk among 7,000 workers in Ontario, Canada, comparing their heart disease rates as stratified by how much standing they do in their jobs over a 12-year period. The thing is, this study ended up comparing people doing widely different types of jobs, from writers who mainly sit to bank tellers who mainly stand. We clearly need much more research on how much standing is key over the course of a day, but unless you're looking at people in similar walks of life, that one variable is unlikely to be the key difference among many other health behaviors. But the entirety of medical evidence does suggest that we know one thing with certainty, more activity in your day is better than less. If a standing desk prompts you to move more, I'll be surprised, very surprised, if we don't ultimately conclude that's a good thing. In case you missed it, CNN had a doozy of a story on the nation's third largest health insurer. Now to a CNN exclusive, California is investigating insurance giant Aetna following a stunning admission by one former medical director. The doctor admitting under oath that he never looked at patients' records when deciding whether to approve or deny care. It's leading to questions about Aetna's practices across the country. Here's CNN's senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen. Dr. Jay Kenanuma is a former medical director at Aetna. He says millions of Aetna members likely lived in his Southern California territory. He had the power to say yay or nay to coverage for medical procedures. So how did he make those decisions? Did you ever look at medical records or basically whenever? No, I did not. 
not by looking at medical records. Now the state of California is launching an investigation. If a health insurer is making decisions to deny coverage without a physician actually ever reviewing medical records, that's a significant concern to me as insurance commissioner in California and potentially a violation of law. CNN was able to get a hold of videotape deposition transcripts in which an Aetna medical director over the course of repeated questioning, every which way, reported that he followed company policy in reviewing only a nurse's notes on cases and rarely, if ever, picked up a phone to ask for more detail. In fact, he said that in a typical month, he asked questions of a nurse anywhere from zero times to one time. In an op-ed for CNN, I wrote about Linda Pino, who, unlike this Aetna doctor, was actually trying to be a whistleblower during the HMO pushback in the 1990s. She testified about the accolades that she got for denying a heart transplant that was medically necessary, but didn't happen to be specified in a man's health insurance policy. We've naturally seen a lot of healthcare journalism scrutinizing hospitals and providers, much of it well-deserved. But it's about time that we take a close look at the extremely profitable insurance industry and ask what we're getting for our money. So I'm all for this type of reporting. Now, one last thing. I'll note that Aetna is buying CVS, a physical on-the-ground location that provides Americans who might have an issue with their Aetna plan to go to, to bring their gripes in person rather than waiting on a phone line. Something to think about. Now it's time for our featured interview, diving into an article from the journal's March issue. We're talking with Alexander Ovechkin. He's an associate professor of neurological surgery at the University of Louisville. He's working in the Kentucky Spinal Cord Injury Research Center, which is part of the Fraser Rehabilitation Institute and Neuroscience Center. His work is specifically in the laboratory of clinical cardiovascular and pulmonary neurophysiology. Dr. Ovechkin's paper is titled, Effects of Respiratory Training on Heart Rate Variability and Baroreflex Sensitivity in Individuals with Chronic Spinal Cord Injury. Dr. Ovechkin, thanks for joining me today on the Rehab Cast. Thank you. I do want to hear a little bit about your, your background. I'm sure our audience will be interested in that as well. You're, you're an MD, PhD. Uh, you've got a, a long track record in spinal cord injury research now with regards in particular to autonomic dysfunction and pulmonary function and so forth. Your clinical background uh, was before you transitioned into full-time research here in the U.S. Uh, that was in, in Russia. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your clinical experience prior to going into research and how that's kind of uh, influenced your, your research mission? Okay, so um, I used to be a general surgeon back in Russia for 18 years. My area of um, research also there and the, and the clinical work about uh, GI surgery, but also I was interested in um, physiology of um, injuries, different kind of injuries. And in 99, I moved to U.S. And actually, it's because of the, the family issues, not scientific reason. But, uh, and actually I started all, all over. I used to have, uh, I, I still, I, I have MD, PhD from Russia in surgery. And um, I finished another PhD here in the physiology and biophysics here in Louisville and started um, my research career in 2005. At that time, 
in Louisville Spine Cord Injury Research Center was um, built and I was accepted as a faculty and since then I working on the pulmonary and cardiovascular complications after spinal cord injury. So we have pretty um, successful group here. It's basic science and the, and the clinical research and uh, rehab facility here. So we work. So I, I, I work with uh, the patients. Others work with animals, and we uh, collaborate and work together toward our common goal to improve quality of life patients with spinal cord injury. Frazier's work is, is well known throughout the field of rehabilitation. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be quite familiar with it. And, uh, uh, you know, your, your, your group there is, is doing a lot of excellent work. Uh, uh, of course, the, this paper in, in the journal we think is, is particularly uh, excellent. Now, uh, you have a lot of expertise in physiology in particular. That's part of what your second PhD uh, was about. And uh, you, have, you have developed some new electrophysiological and electrocardiographic uh, models uh, that, that you use. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, my uh, PhD here was about ischemia reperfusion injury in the lung, in the rabbit model, actually. And uh, when I look at the, uh, the position to continue my work, I found this uh, pretty attractive um, to work again with patients, and it's a spinal cord injury model pulmonary and cardiovascular autonomic complications after spinal cord injury was and still be very undeveloped area. So I start uh, to work with um, respiratory motor control, developing methods to evaluate respiratory function and respiratory motor control using electromyography during respiratory motor related tasks, spirometry and other uh, testing, clinical evaluations, and we published a few papers related to the methodology of this novel technique. And then we came further to investigate different interventions in terms of how uh, they could change respiratory motor control in those patients. For example, locomotor training, functional electrical stimulation, different muscles. Respiratory training was one of them. You mentioned electrical stimulation there, and I know that uh, another line of research that you're involved in, separate from this paper, but I wanted to ask you about also is, is epidural stimulation. I know that's a hot area of research in spinal cord injury, and you're doing some of those, uh, those projects both for motor function and for some of the improvement in autonomic control. Uh, can you tell me the type of work that you're doing there? Yeah, right now it's our uh, main stream work relates to the epidural spinal cord stimulation. So it's an implantable device to the uh, lumbar spinal cord. And uh, we use different configurations of this stimulation to activate motor net networks um, uh, below level of injury. In fact, we also activate autonomic networking and see uh, the improvement of the function related to the uh, reactivation of the network below level of injury. Excellent. Yeah, people are starting to get a lot of interesting results, and I do look forward to seeing what your group is going to get on that as well. Now, this project does not involve electrical stimulation per se. It's good old-fashioned rehabilitation. 
but you're still achieving some quite good results. You don't have to do anything too fancy to see some actual autonomic change. The paper is trying to tackle one of the major killers of people with SCI, and that's cardiovascular disease. Now, you and many other researchers justifiably think that autonomic dysfunction plays a critical role in advancing cardiovascular disease. Let's take a look at each of the factors that you're targeting. Uh, so you're trying to see if you can move the needle on baroreceptor sensitivity, for example. What is the importance of baroreceptor sensitivity? We published in 2016, I believe, a paper showing that res respiratory training significantly improve orthostatic tolerance in patients with spinal cord injury. So the problem is that, that spinal cord injury leads not only to the motor control issues, but the autonomic dysregulation involved uh, network below level of injury. <clears throat> and um, by using respiratory training, we, hypothesi uh, we hypothesized that uh, indirectly from respiratory motor network and directly from autonomic network involved during the training, we can improve autonomic regulation of the uh, cardiovascular system. Baroreflex, though, uh, it's a system which uh, take care about change in blood blood pressure um, and the sensor located in the vessels, in the heart and the lung vessels. And the, the majority of those sensors are located below, uh, above level of injury. So very often in those patients, this uh, function better reflects sensitivity and variability of the heart rate related to this reflex are deconditioned, is deconditioned in those patients. So it's still intact, but um, due to the lifestyle and um, general hypertension, this reflex is impaired. So what we showed in this paper that in um, pretty big spinal cord injury um, population without severe cardiovascular deficits, we can improve this, this function. You're also taking a look at heart rate variability. What's the significance of this measure? So the heart rate variability, what we mean by that, that it's a, um, how frequency composition of the heart rate change during blood pressure uh, changing uh, is controlled by sympathetic and parasympathetic side. So we were able to show in this paper that uh, after respiratory training, both low frequency composition, which is a, a measure of sympathetic activation and high frequency composition of heart rate change improved after the, after the training. Actually, what um, the mechanism of that, uh, the training for the cardiovascular system is during this respiratory training, the patient breathes with the load and the blood, blood pressure during loaded inspiration and expiration is changing, increasing and de decreasing uh, in uh, concert with this uh, airway pressure change and 
barrel reflex start to be trained by this uh, rhythmic change. And we don't show in that paper, but we have data showing that after session one, we don't have this correlation between blood pressure and heart rate change. But during session 15 and later on, we have direct correlation between blood pressure and heart rate change, meaning that this change in blood pressure during respiratory training leads to barrel reflex improvement. Now, uh, looking at the design of the study in particular, you've, you've got a, a good a number of patients here, for, 44, and a, and a wide range of people from six months uh, post-injury up to, to, to quite, quite many months in, in a chronic population here, uh, spinal cord injury. Uh, levels really uh, span span the gamut from cervical to to thoracic, which is a big finding of the paper in terms of uh, uh, what you're seeing in in both of those those populations. So it's a it's kind of a a study that looking at a more practical population. Uh, it's certainly you're you're not keeping yourself in the in the box of looking at people just at a particular few levels or you know particular time point post injury. Uh, kind of more of a of a general clinical population to see if this if this treatment is going to be uh, worthwhile, uh, which which is real real positive. And if you could describe uh, describe in a little bit more detail the the actual course of, of respiratory therapy, it seems fairly straightforward. Just these forty five minute sessions with a fairly straightforward task. What does that look like? All right. So we use. Uh combination of inspiratory trainer and expiratory training devices, uh, FDA approved uh, things uh, combined using key valve um, uh, connector and patient breathes with uh, load during inspiration and expiration uh, about one hour a day, five days a week for one, one month. Uh, we assess maximum inspiratory pressure, maximum expiratory pressure during pulmonary function test as a baseline, and calculate from that um, value 20% of uh, the load for both sides. And actually we start with very low resistance during session one and then incrementally increase this load um, to the, toward the end of the, of the training. And the goal is 60% from this maximum inspiratory and expiratory pressure level. So this pretty straightforward technique. And um, uh, we, since we work with spinal cord injury patients and we have a um, knowledge about organization of the locomotor network, we understood that for respiratory training, it's also important to engage cycling methodology. Like you cannot, you cannot train just one face of the gate. So we combine this inspiratory and expiratory side in order to bring this cycling pattern to the respiratory network to be trained. So. Uh, this is pretty straightforward and uh, cost-effective and uh, effective uh, clinically clinically effective 
method to improve a lot of physiological functions, respiratory motor control, respiratory function, cardiovascular function, blood pressure regulation, autonomic regulation. So we can see from every aspect of the, the, the physiological system uh, interdependence, really big improvement. Yeah, and it, it's something that, that even could be done at, at home. It doesn't require coming into a particular rehabilitation center as, even as an outpatient. You could perhaps uh, follow instructions uh, online, correct? Yes, uh, and uh, for specific studies when uh, funding agency asks us to have a full control over the, the training, we train those subjects in in a in the center in the house but for those who from the from the clinical side we teach them how to use the device how to clean the device for one or two days here in the center and they they use it at home uh, to control um, uh, how they use it they uh, make recordings you know what what the load they use how they increase it how they feel about it and uh i used to do the skype uh, training with the with a group of the of the patients and right now we're working on the electronic device which patient can wear and um record data actually on that device now you got you know uh statistically significant improvements and, and very important measures of pulmonary function, the forced vital capacity and forced expiratory volume in, in one second, and uh, of course your uh, barrel reflex uh, sensitivity significantly uh, improved uh, in the sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, phases. Um, and uh, the, the significance of these, of these results uh, is, is potentially large. Uh, Obviously, it would require a very large population over a long period of time to know for, for sure, but, but previous studies have, have demonstrated links to, to actual mortality and level of, of lung function. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, so in spinal cord injury population, actually the drop in 1% predicted value for force vital capacity, force ex expiratory volume, uh, leads to 5% increase in in the mortality rate. So those patients cannot cough because of the motor control issues. They cannot clean up the airways, uh, leading to infection, pneumonia, and this is a pretty big issue. Another um, big issue is the cardiovascular deficits. If you take together two of these things, it's a leading causes of death in spinal cord injury population. But it's not only limited to the spinal cord injury patients. We also work with patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, for example, and using the same approach and see the improvement in motor control in those, those patients and pulmonary function uh, capacity as well. Now, not knowing much about this research beforehand, if you just asked me, 
uh, as a rehabilitation provider off of the street, if I thought that uh, if this training was going to be done with cervical versus thoracic spinal cord injured persons, I suppose I could speculate either, either way about, about a difference in outcomes, and I would think that there would be a difference. I could speculate that, well, the thoracic level people, look, they'd be able to do the exercises better, so they would, they would probably gain a little bit more. Or arguably, you would say that the, the, the cervical uh, folks might do better because they, they have more to gain. Um, but instead, you found that, that there were significant improvements in, in both populations and, and no significant difference whether you're, you're cervical or thoracically injured. Uh, how do we explain that? So yeah, you're, you're right that uh, in, in the cervical population, they have a bigger window to improve, but at the same time in the thoracic, they have more um, functional capacity to, to use to, uh, for improvement. So that's kind of two, two things um, balancing each other. And you never know that it's in, in what group it will be more effective. But at the same time, uh, the higher level of injury, the more deficits uh, we have. So I would use this approach in every uh, level of injury, and it's uh, just understanding that it's very different um, baseline to to work with. So again, in high level of injury, it's we can more to gain in lower injury we can uh, engage more capacity above level of injury in order to improve either 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 one is is great yeah and uh and you do you did record lots of other associated benefits that people were reporting in terms of quality of life and their ability to to cough and just feel like they were breathing better after doing the therapy uh which uh, which is really nice to to see kind of icing on the cake. I mean, you've got real measurable improvements there with the pulmonary function testing, but, but people really do feel better. Yeah, they feel better. They feel more, more active. They um, can tolerate better uh, the, the position change, so it's less orthostatic intolerance. The voice is uh, mm-hmm. improving. Actually, it's, it's came to my attention long ago when wife of one of our patients said after the training uh, he's on the phone all the time before he was very quiet so i'm tired of him now it was kind of a joke but uh, yeah. so so he he was able to talk now yeah so it's many many things related to the res- respiratory and cardiovascular control got improved very good uh, now, I checked in with one of my, I do brain injury uh, rehabilitation here primarily at Shepherd Center. I checked in with one of my spinal cord injury colleagues to, to double check. And, and indeed, it's not cert- it certainly uh, hasn't even entered their, their clinical practice yet in terms of this chronic population doing any type of, of respiratory training. You're, you're building the, the evidence that, that maybe people should. They've had individual patients who, who are doing it, uh, kind of, uh, 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 who are a little bit perhaps more, more in the know, but it's certainly not part of regular common practice yet. Um, how much more evidence do you think needs to, to build uh, before you know, this start, should start to enter into practice? So in, in fact, this is nothing novel about the respiratory training approach, but at the same time, it is not in the standard of care for the, for the clinical practice. So every time I, I present to um, clinicians, they 
they're saying that it's it's great and it's very cost effective, but it's not everyone starting to use it right away. So I think um, it's a matter, I don't know, so it, if it's in the standard of care, it might be not billable from insurance stand, standpoint, I don't know that thing. But at the same time, if doctor decided to use this methodology, I think it's a, it's just they should go for it. It is definitely low risk. Uh, you're not finding any adverse reactions to the therapy. And just time and effort is needed. And it definitely appears to be worth both. Now, what are y'all doing to disseminate the instructions uh, on what we could perhaps call the Fraser Respiratory Therapy Protocol? Yeah, that's that that's that's what we're doing here. So it's 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 I assume my my job is to um, to publish and you know to share those findings with uh, the, the clinical world and I'd be really happy if, if if that technique will be used broadly. Certainly, this research can easily be incorporated into clinics. Maybe a nice glossy patient education sheet might be in order. Perhaps we can get the journal to publish that as well. Right. Yes. Well, Alex, that's a great overview of your important study, and I really thank you for doing the chat with me today. Thank you very much. It's, I found this conversation pretty good way to disseminate our findings. That's our goal here at RehabCast, and we hope you enjoyed Episode 12, closing out a full first year of monthly podcasts from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Tune in next month for more news, views, and data from the world of rehabilitation medicine. This podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Dallas September 30th through October 2nd, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.